Uh, what got you there with got you got you? What got you there with Shonda Laney? Got you there uh, with Shonda Laney? What got you there with Shonda Laney? Got you there with Shonda Laney? What got you there with Shonda Laney? Dr. Tara Swart is a neuroscientist, leadership coach, award-winning author, and a medical doctor. She works with leaders all over the world to help them achieve mental resilience and peak brain performance, improving their ability to manage stress, regulate emotions, and retain information. Tara is the only top-tier leadership coach with both a PhD in neuroscience and a former medical career as a psychiatrist. Educated at Oxford University and King's College London, her role as faculty at MIT and King's College London and as guest lecturer at Oxford said ensures that she remains at the forefront of the leadership developments in her sector. On this episode, Sean and Tara dive deep into her new book, The Source. If you're looking to improve performance, overcome self-doubt and understand how little triggers like what you wear can impact your brain, then you'll want to check out this episode. If you guys are like me and love listening to podcasts, but don't always have time to listen to the complete episodes, you need to check out podcastnotes.org. What Podcast Notes does is they take the most popular and best podcasts around and distills them down to written breakdowns of each individual episodes. They cover health and wellness, startups and entrepreneurship, leadership, innovation, and critical thinking. You can even find the breakdown of some of the What Got You There podcast episodes at podcastnotes.org. I highly recommend you guys checking them out. Making change transpire. That's the mission behind the most amazing tasting protein bar brand taking the nutrition industry by storm. That brand, they're MCT Co. And they make the most delicious, keto-friendly, all-natural collagen protein bars. If you're obsessed with the quality of food going into your body like I am, then head out and pick up these amazing bars jammed with 10 grams of collagen protein. They only have two to three net carbs, no added sugar, and loaded with high quality MCT oil for the healthy fats from coconuts. Whether you're busy running the kids around from activity to activity, a professional athlete, or just someone looking for a great tasting convenience snack, do yourself a favor, head to mctco.com and use code WGYT for 20% off your order. Do you guys miss your favorite childhood cereals but had to give them up because of all the sugar? Meet Catalina Crunch, the world's first keto-friendly, zero-sugar cereal in delicious dark chocolate, cinnamon toast, maple waffle, and honey graham. When the founder of Catalina Crunch was diagnosed at age 17 with type 1 diabetes, he set out to satisfy his chocolate craving and created his own. This low-carb, zero-sugar cereal will power you through the day with 10 grams of plant-based protein, 6 grams grams of fiber to fill you up and is also gluten-free, grain-free, dairy-free, and 100% plant-based. Don't forget about that turmeric as well to help fight inflammation and boost immunity. If you want to enjoy and receive 10% off your entire order, head to CatalinaCrunch.com. That's Catalina, C-A-T-A-L-I-N-A, Crunch.com, and use code WGYT10 for 10% off. I just finished snacking on some of the dark chocolate, and it was delicious. You guys need to head out and pick some up today. Dr. Swart, we all want to get more out of life, which is why I'm so excited to talk to you. So thank you for coming on What Got You There. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to discuss this all with you. Yeah, no, what I appreciate so much about your work is how you look at the latest cognitive science, neuroscience, and psychiatric understandings of the brain. And it's just so beneficial because then we can understand how we can make more positive changes in our lives. But I really want to know, you're all about positive change. What do you usually do first thing in the morning to get positive change going in your day? <laughs> um, that's a really interesting one because I would say that my morning starts probably unusually late compared to the sorts of people that you usually speak to um, because I'm obsessed with sleep. So my day really is set up to have started having had eight hours of good quality sleep. And my bedroom or any hotel room that I stay in is like, a sort of dark cave, <laughs> as soundless as possible. Um, especially if I'm traveling, I might use certain aromas to anchor myself to sleep, you know, for example, if jet lag's an issue. So 
having a routine around sleep, having a consistent bedtime, a consistent wake time, allowing for that enough sleep that, that I, you know, I know that I need eight hours. Some people don't need as much, but really knowing what number is correct for you. And if I do wake up at all in the night, then I take that opportunity to turn myself onto my left or right side because that's the best position for cleaning out your brain. So I think you're getting a picture that I'm literally obsessed with every aspect of sleep. And that that is a very important factor for me from the minute that I wake up to, you know, to the end of the day. Apart from that, I have some small rituals. I like to start my day with a matcha green tea with coconut oil in it. And just the whole making of that is actually almost like mindfulness for me. I don't eat breakfast. Um, I think we should discuss diet and nutrition a little bit because I'm not recommending that for everybody, but I do time-restricted eating. So I only eat between 12 noon and 8 p.m. So yeah, there's a sort of a, a skeletal structure to my day, particularly in the morning routine. Um, but around that, there's a lot of flexibility because I have um, total variety in my work, which means that every day is different. And I usually choose what I need to do on any particular day based on the single most important meeting that I have that day. Noah, I love how you shed some light on the importance of sleep. So I'm so intrigued. You mentioned the, the total blackout, almost turning it into a cave. Is there anything else that you do maybe just prior to going to your bed at night that really helps you relax, unwind, and just make sure you're going to get a restful night's sleep? Yeah. So I think the hour before bed is very important because that's when your pineal gland releases melatonin, the hormone that helps you to fall asleep. So around that time, I would not look at any screens with blue light. I mean, now I have the settings on my devices that turns the um, screen more orange. But I would also, if necessary, depending on if I'm traveling, use blue light blocking glasses. Like I said, having certain aromas in the bedroom triggers uh, a mental connection to sleep. So I use that more when I'm traveling. But, you know, I, I like lavender and jasmine as my sleep anchors. If I need to, I will use an eye mask. Um, I have another quirky thing, but it is based on science, which is that I, I wear bed socks. Um, so if you keep your extremities warm, you're more likely to fall asleep better as well. So it's, you know, a lot of this is about falling asleep quite quickly. And without trying to sort of overstimulate my brain by doing this, I will look at my vision board last thing at night um, because we know that there's a psychological phenomenon called the Tetris effect, which, and I am from that age group where I played Tetris on my Game Boy till as late as I was allowed to when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. And I remember that, you know, when I closed my eyes to go to sleep, I could see the little blocks falling like on my Game Boy screen. And so later when I came to researching vision boards and what I call action boards, um, that effect became very important because it essentially primes your brain to notice the imagery that's on your vision board the next day and to process that overnight. I love that technique. One thing I, I'm concerned about personally for myself is when I get my brain going just prior to bed, I've even found that I have to read certain types of books, avoid any self-help, any business type books because my mind won't calm down. Anything you recommend for people like myself who might fall into that trap? So I agree with you that if you're reading, you need to be very mindful of what you're reading, especially when I worked as a psychiatrist with children. Um, reading certain books could really sort of stimulate them or frighten them, and that could affect their dreams. I think it's more marked in children, but it certainly also happens to us. For the sorts of people that I coach who, like you, talk about, you know, how do I make sure that I fall asleep well, that I don't get, you know, too mentally stimulated before bedtime, then certain forms of meditation, a specific one called yoga nidra or psychic sleep is it's different to other types of meditation. It's specifically designed to help you fall asleep. So even if you have read something that has got you thinking, then this is a really effective technique for winding down and just relaxing your body and your mind and helping you drift into that good quality sleep that we all need. And you said that was psychic sleep? Um, that's what it's it's called sometimes. It's basically a form of meditation that just really, um, it helps, it, it physically relaxes you and it relaxes your mental processes. So it just calms down the whole brain body system and allows that hormone melatonin to really to, to work at its best. It's anything from the sort of progressive relaxation of your body all the way up to, you know, actually listening to a, a guided meditation or using a mantra, but it's designed to help you fall asleep rather than to attain 
the state of relaxed alertness that we look for with daytime meditation. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, no, I just asked for my own notes as I'm writing here. Yeah, I've done some some different breath work things, but I'll have to explore psychic sleep a little bit more. You mentioned your days are, are always a little bit different, and I'm the same way, so navigating our busy lifestyles are tricky. Is there anything that you've discovered to help you kind of just even psychologically manage the chaos that can ensue each day? To be honest, I I like it that way. So for me, having a job that is the same every day would not, I think that would actually drain me more than um, energizing me. So I like the variety. Y- you and me both. <laughs> Yeah, I, I think you know a lot of you, a lot of your listeners and the people that have been on your podcast say the same thing. So hopefully this is useful to most people. But about ten years ago, when I was being coached myself, when I was starting up my business, I had this vision of balance and variety. And so I actually look forward to you know what's what's happening today. What different things do I have to do? How how do I have to change my mindset to go from meeting to meeting? And and actually. It's a really important thing that triggers to your brain sort of the mode that you have to be in for different meetings is what you're wearing. And I think the most classic example of that is people who either work from home or are unemployed because it's so easy to basically stay in your your pajamas or your gym gear all day. And, and that has an effect on you mentally. It doesn't put you in that mode of being focused on work. So I do talk generally about within something called choice reduction, which is related to our morning routines about choosing your outfit the night before or, you know, or doing a Mark Zuckerberg and just wearing the same thing every day. But I don't want to do that. So I do have a think about what I will wear the next day by looking in my calendar and seeing which meeting is the one that's most important to be appropriately dressed for. Usually that works for everything else that you have to do that day. But I remember a day when I was going from a tech firm in the morning to a very conservative French bank, investment bank in the afternoon. And I decided that it was important enough that I actually changed my outfit on that day. So I think everything that you do sends a signal to your brain about what mode you're in. And being mindful of that, I think really helps you to navigate the ups and downs, the changes, the change of pace that people like us experience um, on any one day. I love the clothing example. I, I'm, I'm guilty myself as well, pulling the, the Clark Kent Superman and going to a different <laughs> meeting and, and having to change. You mentioned choice <laughs> reduction. I, I, I'm intrigued by that along the lines of decision fatigue. And you mentioned mm. Mark Zuckerberg only wearing one outfit. Are there any other big things such as wardrobe that we can just systematize to reduce overall decision fatigue? Yeah, I think it's really important to talk about why this is the case because I think a, a lot of people have heard about um, choice reduction and decision fatigue, but maybe don't, for me, I need to understand the science behind why it's important. So if you think about a, a glass of water, when you wake up after a good quality eight hours sleep, you have a full glass of water, which is the equivalent of your ability to think and make decisions for the rest of that day. Every time you make a decision, no matter how small, like what should I eat? What should I wear? You are sipping from that glass of water. And if you're under stress, which I would say most people in the modern world are, then it's like that glass has a little crack and water slowly leaking out of it all day. That's what decision fatigue essentially is, that you, you drain your resources without necessarily using it for big and important decisions. So the reason that Mark um, wears the same clothes every day and the reason that Barack Obama had a, a very routinized morning including a formula for the wardrobe. So not just one outfit, but it was easy to put the things together, like gray suit, blue shirt, dark blue tie kind of thing, um, is because of the fact that every single decision that you make and the more choices that you're faced with and you have to um, choose between is draining your bucket of cognitive resources. And that's why choosing as many things as you can the night before, like your breakfast or your lunch and your wardrobe, Um, but also just what I call having rituals. So, you know, I said I enjoy this ritual of my tea. I almost feel it's a form of mindfulness, but it also means that I don't have to think first thing in the morning. That's the first thing that I do. And then once, you know, life happens, people start interacting with you, you get onto your devices, um, you can also make choices about how you do that, what order you do it in. Um, I know that a lot of the people you speak to um, speak about doing their 
aerobic exercise before they look at any of their devices so that you know that's done and um you haven't had to think about the hundred emails that are waiting for you when you wake up so yeah i would say food and wardrobe choices are probably the two big ones in that if you're a working parent then obviously you're making choices and decisions for other little people as well so again trying to do that the night before maybe having a plan for the week so that it's just much more automated than it would be if, if you actually lived in chaos. So having said, I love the balance and variety of my work. I definitely don't live in chaos in terms of the small things that I control to set myself up for the day. No, I, I love the example of the water. It paints such a clear picture for everyone because I, I think a lot of people don't understand the impact of all of those micro decisions throughout the day. You you hit on food and, and hydration a little while ago. I would love diving into that just a little bit deeper right now. Are, are there some key things? I know you've done a lot of research into this that just help improve our overall well-being. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the brain, which from my point of view is, you know, it's the center of well-being, it's the center of our decision making, it's the center of how we manage stress, is essentially a tiny percentage of our body weight. It's maybe four or five uh, pounds, but it uses up 20 to 30 percent of the breakdown products of what we eat. So, and I still think that many people wake up in the morning and think, okay, you know, I want to stay in shape. I want to build my muscles. I may be training for a marathon and make a lot of food choices based around that. I still find with my, you know, coaching clients who are obviously very successful and well-educated and um, knowledgeable that there are hardly any people saying, what should I eat today to make the best decisions? What should I eat to be the best manager or leader? What should I eat to be the best father or husband? Um, so once you put the brain first in terms of your diet, it actually makes those choices quite easy in a way. So there are the general things about eating nutrition-dense food. From the brain point of view, um, despite what I said earlier, the foundational advice is to eat regularly because your brain is very energy hungry and it can't store energy for later. So, you know, there's that two hour window around the time of eating and digestion when your brain has a really ready supply of glucose, which is what all of our diet is broken down into. Within that, I suggest that people try to eat as many brain friendly foods as possible in any day or week. So that's the, the good fats with the oily fish like salmon and mackerel, all the really um, good fat oils like olive oil, avocado oil, coconut oil. Um, avocado itself is like the ultimate brain food. Um, nuts and seeds, leafy greens, eggs, they're all high in certain nutrients that the brain really thrives on. Um, I think I mentioned that I put a spoonful of coconut oil into my tea first thing in the morning. Um, so we know that the medium chain triglycerides in coconut oil are taken up readily as fuel by the brain. So that's um, a really good thing to do before an important meeting, um, although I don't carry the coconut oil around with me, so I just take it first thing every morning. Also, hydration. Um, what I say about this is you'd never drive your car to work without filling up the tank, without checking the oil and the water. But so many people go to work not having drunk any water, having grabbed a coffee, maybe skipped breakfast unintentionally or had a just a, you know, very carbohydrate heavy breakfast. So essentially we treat our biggest assets, our brains, less well than we treat our cars. And again, if you put brain first, then I think you you know you you look at that quite differently. Having set those as the foundations, if you are sleeping well, eating healthily, not sedentary, then you can look at some tweaks that really boost your brain power when you have the bandwidth. You know, this is not to be recommended when you're under a lot of stress or traveling a lot. If you've got those foundational factors right, then things like um, time-restricted eating or intermittent fasting can be really um, an, an additional boost for many people. Obviously, this excludes people with diabetes or other medical um causes of, of not wanting to disrupt your diet like that. But the simplest thing to do is um, is pretty much what I do, which is time-restricted eating. So I do 12 noon till 8 p.m. Even doing 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. means you're essentially fasting for 12 hours overnight. If you wanted to take it further than that, then 
um, fasting down to 500 calories for women or 600 calories for men on two non-consecutive days of the week also has brain benefits. Um, and then a 24-hour water fast once a month actually has longevity benefits as well. So there's a whole range of things there which really need to be a bit more personalized than we can go into, but um, they're really, really interesting areas to look into. Yeah, interesting for sure. There's a, a lot of things you just hit on I'm incredibly intrigued by. One, one thing I really appreciate, though, is, is how you framed the question when thinking about diet and what should I eat to make the best decisions. And I think when people approach it that way, it is so much clearer to understand what you're putting into your body. So I really enjoy that. You mentioned MCT oils. The, the listeners of the show know two of the businesses I'm involved with. That's the core ingredient we use both in coffee and in nutrition. So that's, that's close to my heart as well. One thing I'm also interested in is just your ability to, to learn and develop. And you have an MD, a PhD, you're a neuroscientist, a psychiatrist, and a senior lecturer. So let's dive a little bit into your origin story. I mean, what inspired you to study neuroscience and psychiatry? That sounds so insane when you put it all together like that. <laughs> I'm, I, well, I'm like preparing for this and I'm like, oh my gosh, you could be single-handedly the most impressive person we've had on with this background. So I'm just so intrigued by what started all this for you. Oh my gosh, Sean, thank you. Um, so I think it's a story that does have some points that are really relevant for, for everyone. But um, part of it, it was, you know, not by design. So So basically, it's a long backstory. I was the first child of first generation immigrants to the UK from India. And so I had a lot of expectation on me academically and particularly to become a doctor. Luckily, I was good at science and I loved science. So that that naturally happened. But I have to say, I didn't give too much thought to it. I sort of went along the path that was really laid out for me. When I got to medical school, um, I really, really blossomed. I absolutely loved it. And that's when I became fascinated by everything neuro. So, you know, we study anatomy, physiology, biochemistry, and it was the, the brain part of all of those that I just found absolutely fascinating. And so I did my PhD in the middle of medical school because I had planned to become a neurologist. But when I came back to the final part, the clinical part of medical school, and I started interacting with patients, I just found psychiatry so fascinating because it was the more personal psychological aspects of what happens when your brain plays tricks on you or something goes wrong in the chemistry of your brain. And just seeing how people's moods could drastically change or how people could hear voices that weren't there, I just thought was endlessly fascinating. So I, I specialized in psychiatry and I practiced as a psychiatrist for seven years. Um, what happened towards the end of that was that it began to feel very much for me like it was focused on pathology. So it was always about helping people that had something that wasn't going right to try to um, get that right. And it just got me into thinking with the way, you know, the parallels in my own life of personal development and eating right and, you know, always trying to learn and be better. That what if I applied these same sorts of skills to people where there's no mental pathology, where they're wanting to have the edge and to be the best, both physically and mentally. And so I, you know, I spent a couple of years really thinking about transitioning because it's quite hard to move away from being a doctor. Um, and that's when I discovered coaching. And it felt like it had the psychological skills, a sort of Zen aspect, but also a very focused um, outcome aspect that really appealed to me. And so I actually, that's what I first started doing. I just had a small um, business coaching practice. About three years into that, um, so actually, let me just backtrack a little bit. That was around the time of the global financial crisis. So being a clinical expert in stress set me up very well to work with people in financial services and professional services. So that's how I started. Three years in, neuroscience suddenly developed as this really hot topic. And of course, it makes sense once we had the information from brain scans that, you know, that was really what we were looking at. And, and to be able to explain to people that it wasn't intangible psychological concepts like emotional intelligence, it was about building a pathway in your brain. It was exactly the same process as learning a language it was just so fascinating. And it opened up a whole new area for me of speaking, writing, doing team mental resilience work. And 
So actually, it ties back to what you and I were talking about earlier, which is it gave me that balance and variety that I so wanted. Um, and it kind of made it into more of a portfolio career than a, you know, I was the one thing that I was doing. Two words really come to mind just encapsulating all of that, and that's curiosity and confidence. And, and I feel like those things are very prevalent in that story. Do you identify at all as a, as a curious person and also a confident one? I think I was always in trouble at school for being too curious. <laughs> so so that was, that's a very big tick. Um, the confidence one is very interesting because it's only really when I've been through a few cycles of evolution that I've been able to speak openly about the fact that I have had massive ups and downs with confidence. So that first big transition of stopping being a doctor where I had become quite senior and I you know, knew exactly how it worked. And, you know, you're just trained so amazingly and you're part of such an amazing team because any little mistake can mean somebody dies in front of you. Going from that to something totally new in my mid-30s, learning all over again, going into new industries, being really compared to people with years and years of business experience was quite a low point for me, to be honest. Um, you know, and I do believe that, it, you know, sort of like a phoenix rising from the flames, you have to put yourself through some of those low points to really um, become better. But, um, you know, at the time, that was something I would have found very difficult to talk about because I was struggling through that change and that process. But looking back and understanding what I do now about neuroplasticity, um, I'm just so glad that I did it. And, you know, it's, it's turned out to be just so fulfilling and you know, I feel very lucky that neuroscience is such a, a, an area of interest to so many people. So, um, you know, that was that was a process. And then, to be honest, writing the book was another <laughs> low point because um, I've never thought of myself as a writer. And writing my PhD was was probably one of the most difficult times of my life as well. So I had this definite idea that I could not write a book by myself. And that's why my first two books were co-written. And then I had, you know, all this learning and this idea of putting together science and spirituality and psychology and um, business coaching. And I, I guess it got to that point where I had something that I really, really wanted to write about. So I and I did, you know, I made all the mistakes that I wouldn't do again. Like I worked full time, traveled around the world, wrote the book every weekend for a year, um, which was coincidentally the first year of my new married life. So yeah, I think curious, good at learning from mistakes. And, um, you know, the confidence just grows with every like iteration that I go through of a new thing. Um, but I'm certainly seemingly looking back, somebody that's willing to put themselves through a, a crisis of confidence um, and just hope that it all works out, which so far it has. Well, I'm so appreciative that that you're so willing to be open and share that experience because we just hit on all of your accolades and, and how much you've accomplished, but all of a sudden you talk about just the lows of it. So for someone who's thinking about making a big transition in their life, you're able to look back now. If you were giving yourself advice during that transition, you just said a minute ago, now you're so happy you took that leap of faith and you've done it. Is there anything you would recommend to, to your younger self? Mm. Um, a really big thing that I see looking back is how the closest people around me were so positive and supportive. And, I, you know, I remember now friends saying, we know that you can do anything that you put your mind to, but I didn't believe it so much at the time. So I think listening to the people that you keep really close around you is hugely important. Um, all the things from neuroscience, you know, that I speak and write about now, like um, meditation, aerobic exercise, sleeping properly, eating properly, you know, those real basics. But I would also say this continually learning new things, putting, pushing yourself through comfort zones. Um, it just unleashes so much more than you think you're capable of because naturally we all become, you know, if we become an expert or we just become comfortable at something, you would think, why would you disrupt that? Um, but I've really seen that through disruption, you just unleash more and more potential. I mean, I think 10 years ago, if someone had said to me, you'll be a professor at MIT Sloan, I just would have not thought that would ever be true. Um, so I actually said to a friend recently, I think I should stop doing my vision boards because I think I'm only limiting myself by what I think I'm capable of. Whereas 
if you actually just do, you know, all of those foundational behaviors and push yourself into new things, then I think it's much more unlimited than we believe what we're capable of of achieving with our brains. That's a very powerful thought there, isn't it? You know, when, when these things come true that I've either put on my vision board or that I didn't ever imagine would come true, it's, Every single time, it's as amazing as it was the first time. It that it that doesn't you don't get used to that. Um, but I do think that you have to put yourself in in a position where there's some risk to be able to achieve those amazing things. Yeah, risk risk is an interesting thing. One thing I really want to hit on though is you mentioned the people you surround yourself with, and in the book you you brought up a, a technique, and I'm trying to remember the exact name. I want it was something to do with the tree. Yeah. And, can you explain this technique? When I was reading it, I loved this concept. This is actually such a great one for your listeners to be able to do like straight away after the podcast. It's called the people tree. And you basically draw a very like a stick man kind of tree, the trunk and five branches. And you write the names of the five people that either that you spend the most time with or you think influence you the most. And actually, as I've gone through this with people, I've decided that you should leave your children off this list because... We inevitably spend a lot of time with our children, but because they're still forming, it's not quite the same mutual interaction. So if you stick to adults, they may be a grandparent or a parent or a former boss that, you know, really influences you, even though they're not, you don't see them all the time. So pick the top five people that you think influence you the most or you spend the most time with, and then draw five more branches off those five branches and write down the five top words that come to your mind when you think of those people. Now, they don't all have to be good because, you know, there may be somebody that you really admire, but there's something about them being late or their impatience that irritates you, but it's there and it's obviously something that influences you. And then you have to almost like take a deep breath, look at the 25 words in isolation and kind of meditate on them until you accept that all of those 25 words describe you. So there's a lot of evidence from psychology and neuroscience about around emotional contagion that says we're basically the sum of the people that we spend the most time with. And there are studies that show that um, if you have a friend that gets divorced, then your percentage likelihood of getting divorced in the following year is higher. If you have a friend that becomes obese, then again, the percentage of you becoming obese is higher than it would have been. So This can be very confronting because a lot of people say, but I'm not that thing or, you know, that person influences me, but not in a way that I wanted. And it's it's such a powerful exercise to to get yourself to the point where you accept those 25 words. Sometimes it's difficult to accept the good words, but often there's a real trigger point where something that annoys you about your closest person is really like in your shadow. So you don't like to see it in yourself. Um, yeah, I think I think if people go away and do that exercise after this podcast, it could be quite revealing. Oh, certainly. The people tree, I mean, it's, it's a simple exercise, but like you mentioned, so powerful. And, and this requires you to sit down and do a little bit of self-work. Uh, so I'm really fascinated. How much self-work do you do? How many times are you really just sitting down and assessing the broad strokes of both yourself personally and your business? Very often. Um, so I do journal. Um, I go through periods of, of journaling religiously every day and then times where it's not so regular. Um, but I always read over my journal as well. So that is, that's a very basic thing that is like a continual, uh, look at yourself. I have had coaching, therapy, supervision, group, you know, sort of interactions. I've tried everything like that, that you possibly can. I go away on retreats. Um, I spend a lot of time talking with, you know, my, my peers who are kind of psychological or coaching type people about what we're doing and where our blind spots are. I, all the exercises that I've written into my book, I have done and used myself to, um, you know, achieve everything that I've wanted to. And, um, I have a little sort of bedtime ritual, which is that last thing at night before we go to sleep, my husband and I always talk about, you know, what's on our minds, what's happening for both of us at work. We give each other advice. So, yeah, I would say it's probably quite annoying living with me because obviously I'm (laughs) constantly commenting on what everybody's eating and what time they're going to bed and, you know, sort of the rights and wrongs of what they're doing at work. But yeah, I mean, for me, that's 
that's very much part of my life. I, I, I don't know if it's because I've studied it that it's become part of my life or if I was attracted to those subjects in the first place, but they're inseparable for me. So um, yeah, that's, that's a huge part of who I am as a person, not just what I do. Oh, I'm really fascinated by that because I think one of my my flaws as a person is I'm hardest on those I love the most. And the amount of research I do, these types of conversations I have, I'm always so fascinated and I have a tough time balancing that out. Is there anything you think I, I could be doing better to help kind of not bring that approach into, into my personal life as much? Well, that's an interesting one because I, I tend to think that we are most critical of ourselves. And of course, I'm sure that you're the same as me and you're telling people to do things that you're not always doing yourself. So that's a good place to start. Am I doing all these things all the time as well? I've also had to manage that because it is very easy to just look like you're just constantly being critical. When what I've, How I've reframed that for myself is that it's about neuroplasticity. This is an amazing gift that we've been given by um, scanning technologies about how much our brain changes if we choose it to and how much it changes without us knowing if we're not careful what we expose it to. So I think of it as the gift of neuroplasticity, but you do have to be open to people saying things back to you if you're going to be saying things to your nearest and dearest about what they're doing or not doing. So, you know, it's kind of just putting yourself in, in that other person's brain and imagining what it's like to be given that feedback and just being very sure that you would be willing to take it yourself. So I think, you know, a real, a little bit of um, hypocrisy on my behalf is that I love to give neuroplasticity gifts. So, you know, my husband gets French lessons and tango lessons for all of his birthdays and Christmas. But, you know, when it comes to me, I definitely, you know, write a list for Father Christmas. I'm very clear on what I want. <laughs> No, no, thank you for, for diving a little bit deeper there. And something you brought up a few minutes ago that actually kind of gave me chills is you mentioned your lack of confidence in writing the books by yourself originally. And, and this is the first one you haven't co-written. So I, I'm holding the book right now, The Source, The Secrets of the Universe, The Science of the Brain, and just your name is on it. So what does that feel like? It's really incredible. I mean, because it's an actual product and I've, you know, I, I've, I've seen it and felt it and I, I know that people are reading it. I can't believe it. I think sometimes I forget and then I have to remember again that I wrote this book and it's, it's out there with my name on it. And um, I don't know if you know, but it's, it's had 35 translations so far. So I get to see all these different covers and I get to see my name in these languages that I can't even read. And, you know, it really has become... A thing of its own. It's become bigger than I could ever have imagined. And I mean, you know, I think of it as my life's work and I'm just extremely grateful when people like you say that they love it. And um, yeah, I'm excited to see what else happens with it. Yeah, no, a, a bestseller in the UK and then it's launching in the US on October 15th. So this episode will be coming out right around then so you guys can pre-order it. One thing I'm so intrigued by for myself personally is I always know how much I enjoyed a book by how many things are underlined, how much is written in, in the columns. And there's so many actionable takeaways. So I really do enjoy the book. But let's talk a little bit just about the culmination and what led you to write this because it's a difficult, difficult task like you mentioned. So, so then how was this idea so prevalent that you had to put this down and spend all that time writing the book? Mm. Um, funnily enough, now that people have reached out to me from my past and said, do you remember telling us about your idea for this book? And I, I genuinely don't remember, but I think it was a thought process that was going on for a very long time as I put together the dichotomies in my own life of, you know, sort of studying hard science, but also having these quite spiritual practices in the background. Um, so again, I don't know if, if it's a story that people can really take that much from because it seems like a bit of a coincidence, but I got this amazing um, residency at a five-star hotel in London. So they always had an artist in residence and they were looking for something different. And somebody suggested a neuroscientist in residence. And at first people said, that's really strange. Why would a hotel have a neuroscientist? But if you think about what we've just spoken about, sleep, what you eat, what you drink, exercise, mindfulness, um, you know, those things are really relevant to hotels. So that, that residency... Um, got a lot of press in the UK and was very successful. And then I was approached by Penguin Books in the UK. And 
they had obviously done their research because they said we've had books on sleep on exercise on diet and we think that you as a neuroscientist can write one that brings all of those things together and there suddenly was my chance to say this you know thing that I'd kept inside for so long so I said I could do that book but I have this other idea which is basically about the science behind vision boards and the laws of attraction and essentially how amazing your brain is and if you knew that what you could do with it um, and later at my book launch party in the UK, the MD of, of the publishing department that I was with said I could have got the contract and the pen out right there and then. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I think it's it's just one of those things that's so timely right now. If you think about what's going on in the world, in the US, in the UK, everywhere in the world, I think that both science and spirituality may hold answers for people who are feeling very lost. And as I was writing it, even though it was hard, I, I realized that it was very, very timely and that this hard work was go absolutely going to be worth it and just be make something that was there for people at a time that it was really needed. So yeah, it kind of, I mean, it just came together in a beautiful way. I couldn't have planned it, I don't think. Um, but yes, it was an idea that certainly was was developing in my mind for a very, very long time. Well, it's funny you mentioned you don't know how much can be taken away from your story. But one thing you almost glossed over pretty quickly is the amount of time that was required to write this. And you said you were doing it on weekends as you're traveling the world. So what was your actual process like for writing the book? Okay, so that's an interesting question, given that we talked about chaos and risk before, because for, for that, I had to be so disciplined. And you know, once I knew, once I got the contract and I knew that I was going to be doing it, I had to speak with my team and say, you know, I'm going to be blocking out Fridays and then writing Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And you actually cannot put anything into my calendar on those Fridays because, you know, usually a call was squeezed in or, you know, a, an urgent meeting, they might say, you know, can we use that spare time? And I had to be really upfront and say that time is sacred. So then we actually have a slightly strange arrangement at home, which is that we live in London during the week, but we live in the countryside at the weekend. So the whole family was restructured so that we would leave London on a Thursday night. We would all be in the country Friday, Saturday, Sunday. I would write all day, every day. I mean, I, I love cooking. As you know, I'm really into healthy eating for me and my family, but I think we ate like the most pre-prepared meals that I've ever eaten in my life during that year. Um, I was pretty antisocial during that year, um, which I only really realized afterwards. So it was about massive, massive discipline. It, it felt like being back at med school, the way that I just had to say that it was cut off. So yeah, that time I just put in the hours really. I mean, Penguin were amazing. I had a lot of like help and structure along the way. So what I wanted to say really was drawn out in the best possible way. Yeah, I, I would say that really that it, you know, it came down to discipline. I had the content in my head, but obviously I had to do a lot of research to actually back up all the claims with the latest science. So it was just hours and hard work. I can't really say anything more glamorous sounding than that. Yeah, no, I think it was past guest uh, and author of the book Loon Shots, Safi Bacall. And I'm pretty sure he said he would go into monk mode where he would basically disappear into his workstation. So when you're down and you're doing the work in the countryside during a day, are you just sitting there writing for eight, nine, 10 hours straight or do you break up your day? I'm, I'm wondering people who are trying to do a task similar to that, what yeah. they can learn from you. I would, I would break up the day to eat with my family because I felt it was just too negative to the family dynamic if I didn't do that. Um, I did walk around outside when I needed a break. And then I did stop by about 6 or 7 p.m. so that I could like just do something different and relax a bit in the evenings and, and spend time with my family. But going back to what you said about what does it feel like to see your name on that book, the day that it came out here was Valentine's Day. And my um, stepson was at home that day and he said, I'll walk you to the local bookshop to you know, see the books on the shelf. And so we went there together and it was on the top shelf. So he's six foot four. So he reached the book down for me and took a photo of me. And then he looked at me and said, all that hard work and now it's in the shops. 
And I think in that moment, I realized how much sacrifice my family had made as well. Because, you know, you get very focused on I'm working really hard. I need this time to be, you know, sort of like acknowledged and respected. And when he said that, I just sort of got this pang in my heart and thought, you know, they tolerated a lot for a year. I was basically absent every weekend for a year. So it's, yeah, it's been an interesting journey. Luckily, it's actually, you know, the book has really brought us together as a family and been very exciting, um, all the celebrating and everything. And and my stepson is actually going to come to New York for the, the book release day. So um, it's been amazing. But yeah, like I said, I think I made a few mistakes about how I did it. Yeah, it's, it's incredible the sacrifices those closest to us, uh, they make during these times as well. So, so I do want to dive into a few more specific things, uh, both from your research in the past and even the book. And I come from an elite sports background, so I'm always interested in what separates top athletes in terms of brain performance. And I'm really intrigued about visualization. And that's something I did, and I don't even know how I started doing this. This was from a young age. Age, and I'm wondering what you've come across in terms of visualization within terms of elite performance. So you're absolutely correct, of course, that it originally comes from sport. And all the really most successful sports people that I've ever interacted with have a very strong visualization practice. They all immediately say, yes, of course I do that. I've always done it. Um, translating that to business or normal life has was a little bit harder than I thought it would be, given that there was so much good evidence from sport. Um, and, and so I think what you're getting at is where I had to look at the science to sort of convince people that it was actually something that, ha- you know, why it has these amazing outcomes. And so I'll start with a, a sporting story, actually, which is um, the first human to run the sub four minute mile. So before this happened, we thought that it wasn't humanly physically possible. And then Roger Bannister ran a mile in less than four minutes. Within the next two or three months, seven people ran a mile in less than four minutes. And that is the start of visualization because that's the part where just because you know that something is possible, you feel that you can achieve it. And indeed, you physically can achieve something that was deemed impossible previously. If you move on from that and think about any kind of race, We'll start with sports, but then we can move this into the personal, you know, as a personal analogy. Any event, high stakes meeting, speaking engagement, if you visualize the entire race, let's call it, from beginning to end, going successfully, and you repeat that in your mind, then when you actually come to the event, to your brain, it's not as threatening as a completely new event. So that's the second part of it, that novelty is threatening to the brain. And the more that you can present to your brain that this is something you've at least partially experienced before, your stress responses will reduce. Now, we need a certain amount of stress hormones like adrenaline and cortisol to help us to reach our peak physical and mental performance. But if you have too much, it actually works against us. So that's an important part of just visualizing a place that you might be in or the people that you might be with. Further to that, there are some studies in my book that show that, for example, weightlifters who lifted certain weights for eight weeks um, showed a you know X percentage increase in their muscle mass. Weightlifters who simply visualized lifting weights but didn't actually lift that weight, and we, you know, it was in an isolated muscle group, didn't show the same percentage um, muscle mass increase as the people who did but they showed a statistically significant muscle mass increase in muscles where they had only visualized exercising those muscles. And there's more examples of this. You know, a different type of visualization is when you take, um, uh, there was a uh, study where pe- groups of people in their 80s were split into three groups. One group carried on living like normal. One group were asked to reminisce about what it was like to be in their 60s. And one group were moved for one week into homes that looked like their homes did 20 years ago, where their walking aids and and visual aids were removed for a week. And they had photos of themselves when they were younger in the house that they stayed in for that week. The changes in visual acuity and musculoskeletal coordination in both the reminiscing group, but much more so in the actively living group, are astounding. 
And the more you read stories like this backed up by science, the more you realize that if you can see something clearly in your mind, then it can either prepare you for an event, but it can actually also change your body and change your whole mindset and therefore change real world outcomes in your life. Absolutely remarkable. I, I love how you can bring up all these studies as well and, and the research and something that I've really found profound if I'm about to give a talk, if I'm about to go into a meeting is when I'm visualizing, like you mentioned, uh, the novelty, it makes it difficult. So I feel like I've lived that conversation, that speech multiple times, and that has really helped out. Now we're talking high performance and you've worked with an extraordinary number of high performers. Are there any other commonalities you see amongst them? I do. And it's, it's interesting because neuroscience has so many conflicts. You know, I've talked about eating regularly for your brain and I've talked about time restricted eating or fasting. Um, I also often talk about um, taking on new learning, like learning a new language. But I also say that when you're under stress, try to reduce the amount of new things and changes that you're exposed to. And it's a similar thing here in that the one thing that I notice more than anything with my really successful clients is their level of self-belief and the stories that they were told mostly by their parents, maybe by their teachers as children about what they could achieve and how unlimited and massive that was. Having said that, I want to relate it back to my story where often you can look at people like that and think they've become an overnight success and they've had an easy life and they've had you know the privileged education and everything that was handed to them on a plate. So I really think it's about that balance of the grit that drove you to be successful. And that often comes from some kind of, not necessarily huge trauma, but some kind of difficulty or hardship, together with the massive levels of self-belief. And I know that you're very keen on people you know, being able to have takeaways. So I think it's important to say that this isn't just about looking at really successful people and seeing what they've done. It's about knowing that you can change the narrative that you have in your head about your own self-belief. And that is probably the single most important thing for people to work on. Yes, of course, it's important to do all those other things that we've talked about, like the sleep and the diet. And you have to have your body in good enough physical condition to work on the mental stuff. But if you learn to replace every single negative thought that you have with a positive thought. If you have a list of positive thoughts that you can go to immediately to stop those negative voices that we can all have that tell us that we can't achieve things, that we shouldn't be that confident. I mean, this is a Buddhist practice practice that has actually now been backed up by science. So these affirmations and mantras and gratitude lists and you know all these things that we've heard about for a long time have such strong backing from science now. And you know, we were geared for survival to have self-doubt and to avoid risk. But we need to overturn that now. That's not helping us anymore in the modern world. And so doing whatever you can to cultivate high levels of self-belief, I think, is the single factor that sets apart successful people from people that don't ever quite reach their full potential. Some phrasing that, that you've changed around, I really appreciate it, is that you take the the fake it till you make it and you turn that to act it till you are. And, and this really resonates. And I'm curious, how often both yourself personally and the people you've worked with, do you see this being the case that they act it into belief? 100%. I mean, I, I have definitely done it many times. Um, and I mean, I, I can't tell you the stories because they're confidential stories, but I can guarantee you that there are so many high profile people out there who behind closed doors I know that they have done act it until you are it. And I also know that like me, there have been times where they have felt, you know, like I said, that the fact that I'm faculty at MIT Sloan, sometimes I have to pinch myself and, and tell myself that I really am that. Um, and, you know, I mean, you haven't, you've seen pictures of me, but you haven't met me, but I, you know, I just, especially if I'm in my sneakers and my hoodie and stuff, I just look a lot younger and not like an MIT professor. And so I often get asked if I'm the PhD student or if I'm attending the class. And, you know, that could very easily feed into any insecurities that I have, but because it happens so much, I've had to learn to change that into, you know, isn't it wonderful that, that people say that to me because I have actually done that thing that I never thought that I would. And, you know, I still sometimes can't really believe. 
So I think even taking setbacks or perceived criticisms and, and using those to, to actually fuel your self-belief is, is a really important aspect of it. I mean, you cannot overestimate how many successful people are riddled with these insecurities, but they've definitely found a way to not show that to most of the people in the world. Yeah, it makes me think uh, of a line I, I highlighted in the book, and that's mastering mental resiliency. And I know we don't have time to dive into that today, but if any listeners are very intrigued by this concept of high performers, then then your book, The Source, is definitely going to be for that. You also included the quote that I love by Carl Jung, and that's, until you make the unconscious conscious, it will direct your life and you will call it fate. So, so how can we move our subconscious to our conscious to make sure we don't fall victim to this as much? Yeah, so all the sort of personal development work that you and I have done and talked about, but um, seeing as we're running out of time, just very specifically, all the exercises in my book have been structured to raise from non-conscious to conscious anything that might be holding you back, any self-limiting beliefs, and really to, you know, to reframe everything to to positivity and abundance and, um, you know, towards achieving your goals. No, certainly. This this book is incredibly helpful. It's resourceful. The book is The Source, The Secrets of the Universe, The Science of the Brain. So Dr. Swar, as we close here, is there anything else you want to impart on us? Anything the listeners should be doing or enacting today? I think that if the listeners do the people tree exercise and then use that as an opportunity to really focus on their strengths and try to demonstrate those strengths in the real world as much as possible, Coupled with the one thing I would say is to create a vision board. I call it an action board because you have to then do things to make all of your dreams come true. You can't just expect the checks to come rolling in as a metaphor. So yeah, those are the two things. I think focusing on your strengths and creating that vision board and visualizing it coming true, uh, the key to unlocking all the potential in your brain. I know a lot of the fans of the book are sharing their boards online. So I'd love if any of the listeners want to do that as well. Tag Dr. Swart and myself. That would be fantastic. But Dr. Swart, I cannot thank you enough for joining us on What Got You There, giving us so many actionable takeaways and bring so much value. So thanks so much. Thank you so much, Sean. If you guys are like me and love listening to podcasts, but don't always have time to listen to the complete episodes, you need to check out podcastnotes.org. What Podcast Notes does is they take the most popular and best podcasts around and distills them down to written breakdowns of each individual episodes. They cover health and wellness, startups and entrepreneurship, leadership, innovation, and critical thinking. You can even find the breakdown of some of the What Got You There podcast episodes at podcastnotes.org. I highly recommend you guys checking them out. You guys made it to the end of another episode of What Got You There. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I really do appreciate you taking the time to listen all the way through. If you found value in this, the best way you can support the show is giving us a review, rating it, sharing it with your friends, and also sharing on social. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Looking forward to you guys listening to another episode. Making change transpire. That's the mission behind the most amazing tasting protein bar brand taking the nutrition industry by storm. That brand, they're MCT Co. And they make the most delicious, keto-friendly, all-natural collagen protein bars. If you're obsessed with the quality of food going into your body like I am, then head out and pick up these amazing bars jammed with 10 grams of collagen protein. They only have two to three net carbs, no added sugar, and loaded with high-quality MCT oil for the healthy fats from coconuts. Whether you're busy running the kids around from activity to activity, a professional athlete, or just someone looking for a great-tasting convenience snack, do yourself a favor. Head to mctco.com and use code WGYT for 20% off your order. Do you guys miss your favorite childhood cereals but had to give them up because of all the sugar? Meet Catalina Crunch, the world's first keto-friendly, zero-sugar cereal in delicious dark chocolate, cinnamon toast, maple waffle, and honey graham. When the founder of Catalina Crunch was diagnosed at age 17 with type 1 diabetes, he set out to satisfy his chocolate craving and create his own. This low-carb, zero-sugar cereal will power you through the day with 10 grams of plant-based protein, 6 grams 
grams of fiber to fill you up and is also gluten-free, grain-free, dairy-free, and 100% plant-based. Don't forget about that turmeric as well to help fight inflammation and boost immunity. If you want to enjoy and receive 10% off your entire order, head to CatalinaCrunch.com. That's Catalina, C-A-T-A-L-I-N-A, Crunch.com, and use code WGYT10 for 10% off. I just finished snacking on some of the dark chocolate, and it was delicious. You guys need to head out and pick some up today. If you guys enjoyed the smooth sounds of today's episode, then you can thank Brian Lapries, our sound engineer. And if you enjoy the intro song, check out Justin Great, the man behind it. I can't thank you guys enough for listening. Looking forward to you tuning in next time. What got you there with Shonda Laney? Uh, what got you there with Shonda Laney? What got you there with Shonda Laney? Uh, what got you there with got you, got you?